0: I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Syllabus, a podcast about campus politics from American Jewish University and InsideHigherEd.com. You know those people who before every presidential election say, if this person's elected, I'm moving, I'm leaving the country? Well, this week's guest on The Syllabus kind of made a similar move. He left the country for a different job because of who the governor of Florida was, or maybe more broadly speaking, because of changes wrought by the governor of Florida. So he's that guy, he's the person who leaves the country because of political changes. But Neil Buchanan, who is still in the retirement process at the University of Florida, he hasn't officially left the system yet, but he is now on visiting positions at two law schools in Canada, is our guest this week on The Syllabus. And you're gonna hear him talk about why he left Florida, what's going on with politics there and how it affects campus politics. And then you'll hear us go on some interesting detours into questions of free speech and the renaming of buildings and other questions. He was a delight, and I'm so happy to invite you to listen to this conversation with law professor Neil Buchanan. Neil Buchanan, thank you for joining me on the syllabus. Great to be here. Thank you. And where are you today? Where do you come to me from?
1: Toronto, Ontario, Canada.
0: And that is part of our story, because until not long ago, you were happily settled in Gainesville, Florida, teaching at the law school at the University of Florida,
1: yes? Mid-2019, I uh, moved down to Gainesville and uh, took up my position there. And uh, roughly four years later, the whole situation had changed, and I decided that's not where I wanted to be anymore. How had the whole situation changed? When I was being recruited, it was just immediately after the newly, barely elected governor of Florida had taken office, and because he had... One in such a narrow margin in a state that at that point was considered to be a purple state, a very competitive state with demographics trending against a Republican. The thought was that the new governor was going to govern from the center and that certainly the rise of the University of Florida and in, in national and worldwide rankings was a high priority. And so my soon-to-be new colleagues were telling me that there was no reason to worry about political interference in the state university system. And for about a year, that was true. But then once presidential ambitions started to get into the head of the governor, there was a litany of indirect and very direct attacks on the independence of the universities, the academic freedom and talk of changing job security status in a way that would make it more likely that we would be targeted for political views that were inconsistent with the governing party of the state. Can you be specific? For people who have no idea what went on, in what
0: ways did the climate change? What were the new rules? Why were you concerned that you would be targeted?
1: To, To be very specific, one of the first things that made national news was when the universities at a higher level administration announced that something that had, had before then been absolutely normal at every university that I'm aware of, which is professors providing expert commentary, expert witness uh, testimony in lawsuits. The new rule was that at the University of Florida, the professors would not be allowed to do that if the party on the other side of the lawsuit was the state of Florida. And the idea there was that the governor had recently signed legislation that was being challenged in court for civil rights violations and other reasons. And so it's just absolutely normal for professors to be brought in as expert witnesses. All of a sudden, the university administration mysteriously says, oh, that's adverse to the interests of the state. Um, caused a big uproar. And the, the administration sort of backed down, but didn't. But then you had a series of laws being passed with the now infamous don't say gay. Now, that was not applied to the university level to just simply Wait, So for, Again,
0: for people who don't understand this, what was the don't say gay law?
1: Okay. This was a law that said that the understate law, you are not uh, you, uh, a teacher. Originally, I, I, I think it was originally K through three, but it's been extended to K through 12 simply wasn't allowed to even say anything in class that acknowledged the existence of people who were not straight, to be blunt. And so that was a pretty major statute to be passed. There was a lot sure. of protest against it. And, and you say it was a harbinger of things to come at the university level. How- yeah. So th- one of the worst things that happened was, uh, I think it was called, originally called the Stop Woke Act, and then it got some other sort of anodyne name. But But it basically said that, It's And this is at the university level that professors were not allowed to teach anything that might make some student feel anguish about the race that he or she is a member of. The language was more sort of legalistic than that. But the word anguish was actually in there and a bunch of other vague words. And what it essentially boiled down to and the, the reason being a tax law professor, one would think that I wouldn't say anything that was politically controversial. And certainly not something that doesn't seem like tax law has any sort of racist elements to it. But because racism is everywhere in society, it'll show up in various ways, including in studies of tax. For example, when we talk about the difference in homeownership in in the United States, that whites tend to have a lot more of their life savings in the form of a house than black Americans do. That's all tied to mortgage interest deductions, all these things that are sort of boring, but they're part of tax law. And so when I teach those things, I will say is, look, the letter of the law isn't racist, but because we have a history of redlining and all the other race-based ways in which Black people were prevented from accumulating wealth in that way, the effect of the law is to be systemically Favorable towards whites as a statistical matter. Um, you were afraid that the new law would potentially inhibit
0: you from talking about this honestly.
1: Right. Not. I, I'm pretty blunt, and I am fortunate enough to be in a position where I didn't have to worry about losing my job. But I'm one of the few people who, given my overall situation, I'll say what, whatever I want to say, and under reasonable standards. And if they want to fire me for 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 saying that there's systemic racism in the the U.S. housing market, then fine. How did you eventually decide to leave the University of Florida? What was the, the,
0: the straw that broke the camel's back?
1: I think it was when I realized that the people who had made all the changes that were bad enough weren't done. They were talking about all kinds of ways in which the university was going to be brought more politically in line with what the governor and the Republican Party wanted. I mentioned briefly a minute ago that in, beyond this sort of renewable contract aspect to it, there was also some um, discussion, and, and I'm, I, I, it's hard to follow which laws have been passed, which ones have been stopped by lawsuits, et cetera, but there was at least a proposal that made it pretty far into legislative process that would say that the, the administrators at each campus could basically at their will, basically point to any professor and say, we're reviewing you now, even though this is off schedule, we're going to review you. Meaning review you, put you up for review, even though you had tenure. And, and the new rules that were just promulgated a year ago said in, said, in essence, you would get one of four grades. The lowest grade was, resulted in an unreviewable decision that you would have to leave your job by the end of the year. The second lowest was you'll get a year to cure your errors, and uh, and then you get re-reviewed, and that was bad enough on a sort of rolling five-year basis. But when it became a very real possibility that this is something that could just happen at any time to anyone, especially with the, that Stop Woke Act essentially saying the one of the things that you're going to be reviewed for sounds sensible, which is, are you obeying the law? And of course, everybody would think that professors shouldn't be employed if they violate the law. But one of the laws was not talking about systemic racism. Because that might make white students feel uncomfortable. The law said
0: you can't make students feel uncomfortable. Now, okay, so just pulling back and looking at the big picture, you have a situation in which a conservative governor comes in and exercises his power with legislation to try to curtail the political activities of liberal professors or to put them up for review in ways that will make them less likely to speak their mind. Is that a fair summation of what you think was going on? Yes, I think that's the core of it. Okay. So just to be clear, you decided enough is enough, and you are now a visiting professor at two Canadian universities, and you're still on the payroll at Florida, but planning to
1: leave. What's your status at the University of Florida? I, am, I have signed a retirement agreement, even though I'm not retirement age. The New York Times indicated that there are a number of
0: professors in Florida public universities who are leaving earlier than they otherwise
1: would. Yes. Is
0: that your experience?
1: Yes, absolutely. It is. The numbers aren't as big at the quitting level as at the recruiting level, but I have definitely had conversations with people who we at uh, University of Florida would have wanted to recruit who, as they heard things over the last several years, said, yeah, don't even consider me anymore. Can you think um, of a particular
0: professor who didn't come because of the political climate in Florida?
1: I can, but I definitely would not ever use use a person's name publicly without um, prior pr- uh, permission. I, but I can tell you, I've had multiple conversations with people who had job offers, but declined. You know, them. With, with people who at any stage. So sometimes the whole process of recruiting somebody is months, if not years long. And so, so at um, some point
0: they, they indicated they weren't interested. My general sense, and I haven't interviewed Governor DeSantis, though I hope to, and we're hmm. going to put in a request. I imagine he'll decline, but who knows? Mm-hmm. My general <laughs> sense is that Governor DeSantis, and I base this on things he has said publicly, would say that he is trying to correct what he sees as a liberal overreach or a liberal bias in the universities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is a liberal overreach or liberal bias on faculties?
1: No, I don't. I, I know that there are surveys that say that they get like your party affiliation for universities and that they tend to skew Democrat over Republican. But interestingly, those that continues to be true even in what you might think of as the non-political fields, the the math departments, the physics departments, things like that, or even business schools where you would think there would be a sort of more Republican friendliness to the sort of basic ideological approach. So the, the best explanation I've seen of this is that the hostility to higher education goes back in the Republican Party for decades. And... Essentially, why would professors affiliate with a party that fundamentally undervalues what we do? So let's
0: pause it for a moment. And I think there is overwhelming evidence of this, that, that academic faculties by and large are overwhelmingly liberal leaning or at least Democratic Party leaning. And also, if you look at donor dollars, if you look at what political candidates faculty give money to, mm-hmm. at many universities, donations are. Faculty to Democrats outnumber donations to Republicans by nine to one, 10 to one, 15 to one, 20 to one. It's not even close. Sure. And your contention is that this has to do with a resistance to the Republicans' traditional position on
1: higher ed? I offered one explanation, and you're saying that's my entire explanation. So the answer is no. Oh, okay. Um, to that, and I, I started with that because I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding is that. It, it, it's relatively common to, to point to sociology departments or English literature departments or something like that and say, look at all, the, all, all those academic lefties. But the point is that people without a, 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 an academic portfolio that has a, any kind of obvious political slant to it, it's reached the point where, more generally speaking, being college educated, much less higher education educated, skews Democrats. That's true,
0: but I think that university faculties are even are way more likely to skew liberal than, say, the guild of oncologists or accountants. I don't I don't have the evidence at my fingertips. I'm just going Mm -hmm. on being out of college for 30 years and having worked in various environments and having friends in various fields, and you can tell Mm -hmm. me if your experience is different. But I've never been in a guild or in a workplace that is as, as sort of homogeneously Left liberal, as higher ed, and I wonder. And again, I'm just tying this all back to Florida, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, I take what. You, let's pause it for a moment. That everything you've said about Desantis's laws and his intentions is true. And by the way, as a free speech dude, I am deeply concerned by the things you describe. I, mm-hmm. I think we're on the same page with them. But to that question, I do want to. I, I do think it's fair to say. If we're trying to understand all sides as fairly as possible that DeSantis is not imagining something when he thinks that higher ed has become a culturally left, fairly homogeneous
1: institution or guild but but you think that's not true? It depends on what you're talking when you talk about homogeneous in terms of the external political views of my colleagues. Talking over coffee, sure. More of them are pro-choice than not. From my standpoint, every law school I've been at, I've had conservative colleagues and liberal colleagues. When I was in economics, I had more conservative colleagues than liberal.
0: But Uh, we are a country that is roughly divided, say, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. I realize those are very crude metrics, and I apologize, we have no choice but to use them. mm -hmm. But the country is roughly evenly divided, and the odds that a professor you get in any, And I'll take your point. In any of these departments, economics as well as comparative literature or law, your odds of getting a conservative or Republican professor in for a given class would be between zero and five percent, depending well, on the department. Well, it's
1: not that low in, in any department that I've ever been in or in any law school that I've ever been in. Let's
0: call it 20 percent. Should yep. we have any reason to be concerned if academia looks so dissimilar to America in terms of its political orientation? Is there
1: any reason for concern at all? It, you would have to ask if it's showing up in the classroom, and I don't think it does. You'd have to ask if it's happening because we're looking for the wrong thing when we hire people. There, especially being in economics because of interest in finance, but people who might become PhDs in economics can go off and be masters of the universe. And in law, there are, are a lot of people who have conservative leanings who can go off and be a hiring partner in a big law firm in a major city and make millions. And there are people like me, I'm not by any means poor. I, I appreciate the standard of living that I've gotten. But you know, professors who are more likely to think money's not the only thing, I, I should say people who are more likely to think money's not the only thing. Would look at a professor's job and say there are other satisfactions here.
0: Here's what I think. Here's the problem with that as a controlling analysis or as a predominating analysis, is that the numbers have changed. When I was an undergrad in college 30 years ago, my sense is that faculty were somewhat more diverse ideologically than they are now. I think there's mm-hmm. I think there's been a polarization. I'm surprised at how resistant you are to to the conclusion that I think I'm implying, which is. That there's cultural hostility to conservatives in many of these institutions or these faculties. That they're not. That it's not just that you make less money. It's that you also find that you're in places where your views are demeaned or not given a fair hearing. And I guess I'm surprised that you don't think there might be some cost to the students' education when they're hearing from people from faculty who are fairly ideologically uniform. But you're not troubled by any of that.
1: I don't know what the word troubled means in this context. Let me turn answer the question from the opposite direction. Should we start hiring people on the basis of their political view, explicitly on the basis of their political views? I don't think so. Do we have evidence that students are coming out and being more liberal than uh, than they would otherwise be? Like all the indoctrination stuff that that DeSantis and and people like him talk about doesn't look like it. But it doesn't strike me that people who are against DeSantis are interested in this conversation
0: at all. They just think there's no problem. The faculty is overwhelmingly liberal but none of them is indoctrinating students. No, the, the, the liberal character, the well, faculty come on. is always I mean, hostile. Not,
1: nobody would ever say none of nothing ever happens. Of course, there are conservative faculty who try to indoctrinate students, even though they're a smaller number. This is not the black and white that, that that kind of question sets up. Hey friends, if you're digging
0: this conversation with Neil Buchanan, would you support this podcast by subscribing and going to your platform and rating it? and maybe even sharing it, whatever you can do to get the word out, we're so, so, so grateful. If you have ideas for future guests on the syllabus, people who have something interesting to say about campus politics, please write to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. You wrote a piece that I found really interesting about two examples of white privilege. One is the way whites interact with police officers. And the other was around the question of naming of statues and buildings and things Mm -hmm. like that. I want to change the subject a little because this is something that everyone who's been on a college campus, or at least many people on many college campuses, has had to look at and deal with over the past five or 10 years. The question of buildings that are named for people who we now know, or we're now reminding ourselves, held views that were anything from out of fashion today to completely loathsome and risible by any standards. What was your conclusion about what we should do about that that large number of buildings named for people? bad
1: views. My conclusion was not that every name should be changed, but that we should be open to community discussion about changing names of, uh, at, at any given time. If something, if something uh, and for example, up here in Toronto, there is a, a university that's now called Toronto Metropolitan University. It used to be called Ryerson University. About four or five years ago, there was a pretty ugly history of the Mr. Ryerson that had to do with the native tribe schools that were particularly an ugly episode in Canadian history. And it's no longer called Ryerson University. At University of Florida, the law school is, the main building of the law school is named after a former governor and senator from Florida who led what was called massive resistance to Brown v. Board. To me, that's not somebody who should be honored by having their name on a building at the flagship campus of the state university.
0: So this is super interesting to me. I will confess, I've gone back and forth on this question many times in various instantiations. I was teaching at Yale when Yale decided to rename Calhoun College, the residential hall that was named for Senator John Calhoun, who was Mm -hmm. one of the great theorists of slavery as a positive good. He wasn't just a a kind of go along with the flow supporter of it. He wasn't passive about it. He wasn't just a man of his times. He was a a, a true enthusiast for slavery. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately agreed that they should rename the college. And they did. Um, And I think that was a good thing. But looking at the question of renaming, I sometimes find it interesting. I have a hard time putting my finger on the good that is served by renaming. In a particular sense, it seems to me that underlying this claim that certain names should be taken off of certain statues or buildings is an almost metaphysical claim that by leaving the name up there, there is a furtherance of harm. Even if you can't point to the specific harm. The speech act of having the name associated with the building continues to perpetuate a harm. And it strikes me as an almost religious claim.
1: I guess I can see why you would describe it that way. It's certainly not the way I think about it. To me How do you the think the, about it. Yeah, the simpler way to think about it from my standpoint is naming things after people has a reason in the first place. If we have something named after one person, then that means it's not named after anybody else. And if we think that putting the MIT, for example, has buildings that have letters and numbers, and that's it. Some of them have names, but many of them don't. But but if we're going to put up statues, if we're going to have names on buildings, if we're going to have names on cities, streets, all those things, then we put them on there in the first place. We can take them off at any time if we decide it's important enough. And, and maybe putting, taking Andrew Jackson off currency and putting somebody else on, I don't view it as a religious thing. I find a kind of alienation
0: from both sides in that I don't really care whom buildings are named after. And there's mm-hmm. a community of people who care passionately whom buildings are named after. And they think that it matters in their lives, even if maybe they can't point to how it matters.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have that intensity about it. But if there is a Stalin Hall, I would change the name. From my standpoint, it's, if we wanted to go to a name-free system, sure, if that would work, it would work. But I'm of the view that choosing one name rules out all other names, and so we might as well choose one that that, that, that is connected with somebody who's not horrible. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Are you
0: going to get Canadian citizenship now?
1: It's, it, it's early in the process. Let's say I am looking into pursuing that as a, a very real possibility. All right, we would miss you, but
0: good luck with your <laughs> pursuits and thank you so much for being on the syllabus. Thank you. Friends, the syllabus is a production of InsideHigherEd.com and American Jewish University's Office of Open Learning. You can find out more about our free classes at aju.edu/slash open. If you have any thoughts that you want to share with me, write to me, Mark Oppenheimer, at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. Our production team includes, at Inside Higher Ed, the terrific Doug Letterman, and at American Jewish University, Editor Jacob Kaufman, Amelia Hamill, Sherry Hirely, and Alyssa Silva. The president of the university is Jeffrey Herbst. Please follow us at aju.edu
1: slash open, and thank you for listening.